welcome once again to a novel evening. As always, I'm Danny. I don't know what happened to my voice at the start of that intro. <laughs> but anyhow, you can find me over on Instagram and TikTok as at a novel evening podcast. Hello. Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in and listening. Um, last time I recorded, I was very sick with COVID. I sounded pretty horrific. Hopefully, apart from my weird little strangled sound at the beginning of this, I sound relatively normal now. Um, and I am ready to chat to my latest guest, uh, the author of The Murder Wheel. Now, we know I'm a big fan of anything set in the 30s. Love it. Give me all of it. It is for me. And this book is absolutely no exception. There's nothing I love more than a good murder mystery than when you throw in some magic, some theatre, some illusion. Give me all of that goodness. And I cannot wait to chat to Tom all about the murder will, his inspirations behind this book. He did a lot of research into this as well. So I'm very excited to delve into some of that with him. And of course, I'm hoping he's going to bring a little bit of this to his novel evening. A massive hello to Tom. Hello. Oh. Hello, Danny. Hi. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining. And as we're talking and recording, I'm aware we're only 48 hours from your book, The Murder Wheel, being live in the world. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Um, although I should say uh, it is already out in the US. It, uh, it, yes, it came out in July in the US. So it's quite a surreal thing now having a countdown to the UK publication, knowing that uh, across the Atlantic, it's already out there. That's so funny. That's so interesting how it works with kind of publishing over there and here. A few people have said that or the US one will come out a bit later and vice versa. So it must be quite odd because you've already had one countdown. Now you're doing it again. That's it. Exactly. Yes. But I love it. Obviously, it's great fun. Um, but it it, uh, it is certainly surreal when people are sending me pictures of the book on shelves in the US. Oh, and does it look different? Does the US cover look very different yes. to the UK? Yes, it's published by Mysterious Press over there, and they've got a fabulous cover um, that is, uh, it's, it's similar in um, composition, but the style of it is completely different. Oh, that's so cool. And do you get a copy of that as well? Do you get to have kind of I multiple... Do. Oh, very nice. And how does it feel, you know, when you're 48 hours out, it's about to come out in the UK, you know, do you think it'll ever get old, this feeling? Uh, well, this is my second book. Uh, it's been it's been a hectic year because the first one, Death and the Conjurer, came out here in the UK in February. So it, it has been um, an incredibly busy time, no shortage of excitement, but uh, hopefully uh, I think uh, from next year onwards, things will will quiet down somewhat, but I, I think the excitement will still be there, of course. Yeah. It's, um, uh, it's just the two books in a year thing has certainly, uh, has certainly been... Uh, yes, it's been it's been very exciting, of course, but uh, uh, very demanding as well. Yeah, I bet. I can imagine as well just trying to wrap your head around publicising one book and as you're in the throes of doing that, the next book is like right on your heels, right? That's it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Oh, my goodness. So for listeners, first and foremost, we should kick off. But I should ask you about The Murder Wheel. Tell listeners what The Murder Wheel is and what it's about. Absolutely. Yes. Well, The Murder Wheel is a uh, vintage style, uh, golden age inspired murder mystery. Um, it's uh, a sequel to my first book, which was called Death and the Conjurer. Um, and uh, both uh, both books are set in 1930s London. Uh, the Murder Wheel is a locked room mystery. So it. Um, uh, it's very much a, a puzzle mystery where I'm encouraging the reader to play along and try and solve the crime, identify the who done it and the how 
of the crime uh, before my fictional detective. Uh, it's also a theatrical mystery. So it's set mainly in the backstage corridors of a fictional West End theatre. Uh, I, I love I love the theatre, of course, um, and uh, stage magic. I'm particularly fascinated by stage illusions. Mm. Uh, so my, my detective, my, uh, my sleuth, is um, a retired musical conjurer, and his name is Joseph Spector. And in the classic Golden Age vintage detective style, he is an amateur sleuth who is recruited because of his uh, because of his unique expertise in unraveling seemingly impossible or apparently supernatural phenomena mm. so um he's got this uh, kind of combination of uh, uh the the mystique and the air of something slightly uncanny that comes from being a professional magician but then at the same time he's got the the logic and the uh the razor sharp reasoning of the uh, conventional detective so um uh, yes, uh, the murder wheel begins with a murder that takes place on a Ferris wheel, hence the title. Um, no. But really, that's just the kind of jumping off point for uh, for a whole um, complicated web of mystery. Oh, I love it. This has so many elements that I love. Firstly, I love a book, you know, a puzzle book where it reminds me of Cluedo, right? Where you're trying <laughs> to fathom what's I used to love Cluedo, was awful at it never got it right so yeah the hopes yeah. are not high for me with the book <laughs> <laughs> yeah I love I love Cluedo as well the interesting thing about golden age detective fiction I mean I mean golden age typically it's it's crime novels from between the world wars so it's your yeah. Agatha Christie your Dorothy L Sayers your Marjorie Allingham Naya Marsh Edmund Crispin um Anthony Barclay, so so many so many big names that are um, uh, that are steadily coming back into print. Yeah. Agatha Christie of, and Dorothy L. Sayers obviously have never been out of print, but uh, some lesser known or comparatively obscure writers like Freeman Wills Croft, people like that, are coming back into print. So um, mm. uh, the the thing that um, uh, is particularly appealing to me about that golden age era is is the puzzle is yeah. uh, the uh, the complex plot the, uh, the the sense of a game so it's it's uh, um, fitting that you mentioned Cluedo but of course the uh, the, the main uh, the main distinguishing feature of the golden age mystery novel is the cluing, the placement of clues and this notion of playing fair with the reader by making sure that all the clues are there in plain mm. sight throughout the text, but hidden in such a way that the reader will only spot them once the detective has highlighted them. So, um, uh, so that is what appeals to me as a reader. That's what I love when I right. read a good mystery of being fooled, being tricked, and um, then having that uh, that curtain lifted, if you like, in the uh, in the unraveling of the solution and seeing that the clues were there the whole time, but the mm. writer was so clever and so devious that I didn't spot them. So that's um, that's the kind of that's the approach that I take as a writer. I'm trying to capture that feeling which I enjoy that uh, that sort of intellectual challenge that comes with uh, with a, a, a well-crafted mystery. And is there any pressure for you with that? Because, as you know, you know what's going to happen. You know who done it. But then is there the pressure to make sure you're, A, not making it too difficult for the reader because obviously you want them to be able to kind of follow along a little bit and pan maybe pick up on some clues while still making it tricky enough that it's not obvious who did it? Yes, you're right. It, it is quite um, a plate spinning exercise. You uh, <laughs> you are trying to strike a balance. Yeah. Um, the uh, I uh, uh, of course before the the book um, comes out into the world, I, I will try it out on readers. That's the only way really to find mm. out if it if it works and which bits of it work and which bits don't. 
Um, so I am very lucky that I've had some very, uh, uh, very skilled, very meticulous readers who've been uh, who've been invaluable, really, in the in the development of uh, of the plot. Um, and uh, yes, uh, I, it was the same with the first book, Death and the Conjurer, yeah. as well. But I also like to. Uh, I think that the important thing with this kind of mystery is you want the solution to have a sense of something inevitable. So mm. when you reach the uh, the revelation of who done it, how the crime was committed, and all the all the inexplicable, seemingly inexplicable circumstances are now explained, you want as a reader to have a feeling of, of course, it was that there was no other possible solution and that's a difficult thing to do uh, to to get that sense of re that retrospective inevitability after the fact um but uh, the greats they all do it agatha christie does it um my personal favorite gold mage mystery writer john dixon carr he does it uh and um it's uh that's what I that's what I'm striving for, really. Um, whether uh, whether I achieve it is is dependent on the readers. And that's uh, uh, so that's what I rely on uh, during mm. the editing and the redrafting and the, um, uh, you know, the tweaking of the little details here and there. Yeah. And I guess, you know, my next question as well, you know, with Golden Age, novels like this what kind of you obviously like to read them yourself um you've lifted off quite a few names there what was it that drew you to want to write your own well uh i i grew up surrounded by them uh, the paperbacks heaped around the house all the agatha christie's dio marsh all these uh, all these names and uh, so that they were my introduction not just to crime fiction but to reading generally when I was very young you know so they, they've always uh that that type of mystery has always been there uh in in the the back of my mind it's always been sort of uh, lurking on the periphery um and <clears throat> when I'm uh I had always had the idea to write I always wanted to write and tell stories um but the notion of coming up with a, a puzzle plot mm. um, in the style of the Golden Age was something that came later. Um, I actually I wrote the first two books in draft during 2020, during the wow. uh, COVID lockdowns, um, because like so many other people, of course, it was uh, it was it was an exercise in escapism. It was about trying to, I suppose, uh um uh trying to sort of occupy my mind with something creative but also i think it was about um uh harking back to the plots and the style of writing that i'd always enjoyed that had always sort of been there as a as a kind of a a, a comforting presence it was about trying to uh do something of my own that would uh, that would fit that would sit on a shelf alongside them. So it was very much about paying tribute to the greats uh, and the uh, the authors that appealed to me and the the style of the of the vintage puzzle mystery, while still being your own your own interpretation of it. Yeah, precisely. Yes, yeah. it was about paying tribute, but at the same time trying to contribute something new. Yeah. to uh, an already established genre so it, it um i mean i've been very fortunate that there's been a, a resurgence of interest really in the golden age of crime fiction you've got the british library crime classic series which has seen so many obscure forgotten authors returning to print um and then uh, you know there are so many uh, mainstream puzzle mysteries that have really caught on in yeah. the uh, in the general uh, kind of pop culture. I I think of Ryan Johnson, Knives Out, and the TV show oh, yeah. Poker Face, both of which I, I'm a big fan of, of both of those shows. Uh, well, the the show and the the film series, yeah. um, because uh, the great thing about Ryan Johnson is that he has uh, a very very wide 
reading within his genre. He's got an awareness of that, mm. uh, the, the techniques and the trappings of the genre, which, uh, which he brings to bear cinematically. Um, mm. And uh, I think that's been particularly significant in, uh, in the kind of resurgence of Golden Age puzzle mysteries. Likewise, um, TV shows like Death in Paradise obviously are attracting yeah. millions and millions of viewers, whilst also having, uh, you know, in some cases, surprisingly sophisticated puzzle plots for an hour long program, you know. Yeah. Um, but, but again, all the trappings are there. You've got your, uh, your set of suspects in this, uh, in this glamorous location. You've got your... Um, red herrings, your um, complicated network of, of alibis and motives and, uh, and all that kind of thing. But in a, um, uh, in a very sort of accessible package of, of the primetime BBC show. Yeah. So I think all of these things have been, uh, have been very helpful in, in bringing the genre back and um, I've I've been lucky that that my books have have come at this time mm. uh, because uh, hopefully it's it's attracting some of the readers who otherwise wouldn't have had an awareness or or an appreciation for the genre. Um, hopefully, it's attracting them with something new. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And you know, you see a lot of the like the Poirot films are out in the cinema, you yeah. know, with really big names in younger people are going to watch them. I definitely think it's a genre that is starting to appeal to younger readers again as well. People are, be, you mm. know, they're interested in, I mean, I live in the hometown of Agatha Christie. I know there's kind of a bit of a resurgence here with younger people going to things like the Agatha Christie Festival because they've seen the films or they've, you know, gone back and watched some of the older films or the TV adaptations. And I think it's it's really interesting how these things kind of come back around. It is, it is. Um, and uh, again, with the murder wheel, it's not an accident that I chose that title because obviously you've got an image, you've got an image of yeah. the Ferris wheel, but also there is a kind of double meaning. I, I in the plot, I, I'm interested in this idea of something cyclical, it all coming back around full circle. Uh, it begins on the Ferris wheel and it ends on the Ferris wheel. And um, it, it, you, you'll notice in the book that, that this idea of things coming full circle is is there. And I think it's true of genre as well. Uh, every Everything, uh, I mean, the golden age certainly fell out of favor in the yeah. latter half of the 20th century. And it became very fashionable to um, uh, to criticize and to uh, to um, uh, to decry the the uh, golden age authors like Agatha Christie. Yeah. But I think they have a they they are essentially timeless. Uh, the novels are social and historical documents in yeah. that they are a chronicle of the time in which they were written. But I think in terms of the effect they have on readers, they, they transcend that. I think uh, the appeal of the puzzle is something that transcends the trappings of, of the genre. So uh, any perceived tweeness or coziness about them, I, I, I don't see it myself because I'm, I'm drawn most of all to the puzzle and to the atmosphere. Yeah, the darker elements. And like mm. I've got a very I've got quite an impressive piece of paper that outlines some of the research that you did for this book, which oh. I find really fascinating. So firstly, magic that you've included yeah. in this. So I've read other books which it features stage magic. And I know that, you know, if you don't get that right in a book and you haven't done your research when you're putting stage magic on, people can pick holes in that so easily. When you, where did you begin when you knew you were going to have stage magicians and illusionists? Where did you begin with that? Well, the good thing is that I have a general uh, fascination with stage magic, which uh, precedes the books. I have done a lot of reading of nonfiction uh, about the history and the evolution of certain stage gimmicks and things like that, going back to the Victorian era and before before then. Um, so, uh, 
stage gimmicks like for instance pepper's ghost things like that which mm -hmm. uh, uh which became incredibly uh the the effectively the sort of standard for uh for theatrical practice right during the victorian era when these gimmicks were being first developed they were they were so exciting and had a real sense of uh something genuinely supernatural taking place in front of an audience and i uh, i think that's I, I find that fascinating uh, the the victorian era was certainly the time when uh, large scale stage illusions were coming into their own there were so many ingenious innovators and technicians at work and i think it's uh, i think it, it it lends itself naturally to a mystery plot it complements yeah. the uh, the um the sort of labyrinthine nature of the murder mystery having these uh, these these gimmicks and the the uh, also the the kind of conscious mystification that comes with it the the idea of an audience entering into this uh, this sort of atmosphere of mystery and bewilderment is is very uh, very apropos in a murder mystery yeah. uh, but i'm also as well as the gimmicks and as well as the real life historical figures so your harry houdini your david devant etc uh, i'm also very interested in the psychological and uh, the neurological aspects of illusion so how they work on the brain um so i've read uh, uh, a great deal about this um, effectively how misdirections work and how uh, illusionists and um, confidence tricksters, scam artists, all these kinds of things where the, the, uh, the aim is to um, guide your audience's attention away from something. Um, and uh, I find it very interesting to read about that, um, the, the processes that take place, the, uh, the kind of the, the gaps in our perception and our cognition that illusionists take advantage of. Um, mm. But at the same time, I think these are the same attributes that mystery writers are taking advantage of. It, yep. The misdirection is the same. Uh, the processes and the the theory behind it is essentially the same. So again, it, it just seems like such a such a natural thing to me to set a murder mystery among magicians and in a world of stage magic where um to use the cliche, nothing is as it as it seems, you yeah. know. And uh, you you um uh and as a reader, I want I want people to be entering into it in the same way that the audience will enter into a magic show. You know you're going to be tricked uh you're going to be obviously you're going to be trying to spot how the trick is worked but then the fun of it is that you can't i'm awful as well like we've watched a lot of darren brown shows i can never i would dynamo any of these kind of modern illusionist magician i i will never be able to figure out it doesn't I can't yes. understand it I can't fathom it I don't you know no. but again there's something almost kind of fraudulent in there as well there's a darker side of it as you say you know you're being tricked but there's still there's still people who very much believe that what they're seeing is real yes it's true uh, this is another interesting paradox that has always appealed to me of Harry Houdini one of the greatest and most well-known stage illusionists escapologists of all time he had he was a, a master at, at kind of curating his public persona he was a great self-publicist etc and he was also um a uh you know an, an incredibly popular stage performer yeah. but uh, aside from that when he wasn't curating this sense of his own mystique and his uh um you know this this notion of him as this kind of uh um mysterious almost supernatural figure uh in fact he was a um 
a skeptic in in uh, of anything supernatural he yeah. he was a, a an avowed debunker of fraudulent psychic mediums scam wow. artists that kind of thing uh, and of course in the aftermath of the first world war there were so many uh, psychics so many phony seances and things uh, springing up to take advantage of the uh, the grief of uh, the bereaved in the in the aftermath of the war and so he there were so many uh, great publicity stunts there are books that he wrote where he effectively um uh, lifts the veil and uh, um and exposes all the tricks used by these scammers and i find it interesting you've got the uh, the kind of paradoxical nature of the character that he is by day curating this image as a uh, um a performer of miracles but then uh, uh the other end of the scale he's he's also got this razor sharp logic and this kind of yeah. uh, you know he he's all about uh, re-establishing uh, a sense of status quo by um uh by exposing the fraudulent supernatural phenomena so that's the kind of that paradoxical nature is what appeals to me about having a magician as a detective yeah um and uh um but then the uh the inverse we find the inverse when you look at arthur conan doyle creator of sherlock holmes who yeah uh, he obviously created the one of the one of the greatest fictional detectives a, a character whose um deductive powers are so pronounced and who's such a spectacular uh, colorful eccentric character who's uh left an indelible mark on uh on readers but then conan doyle himself yeah uh, was the inverse of harry houdini and he was a believer in all things supernatural he believed in ghosts he believed in seances he believed in fairies and phantoms and everything um and uh, it's, again it's a paradox because he, he he created these brilliant mystery stories where the solution if you think of the hound of the baskervilles we have a seemingly supernatural phenomenon which is explained in an earthly rational fashion um but he himself was uh perversely enough he was a believer in all these these things so yeah uh, I think that's really I interesting. interesting yeah i find it interesting that's that's the word for it it always uh, it always draws me back and i i i'm uh i'm particularly enthralled by any mystery which has an element of something seemingly uncanny supernatural yeah. eerie but which has a, a a rational explanation at the end. Mm. Um, I think uh, uh, I think that is the hallmark of a, of a good impossible crime story or a locked room mystery story. The sense of something that couldn't possibly have happened has happened. But then, where's the logical uh, explanation? Yeah, but, for that? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So so that's the appeal, and that's the kind of thing that I'm trying to do with these books and. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, it uh, it just seems to fit in with the worlds of magic, professional stage illusion, but also this idea of debunking the, the frauds yeah. and the scammers. Oh, now, Tom, before we dive into another evening, I have to ask, what comes next for you? This is obviously the second, you know, this is a sequel to your first book. Do you know? Well, you may not be able to say, but do you know what comes next for you? I do, yes. I can tell you that, um, yes, the third book featuring hey. uh, Joseph Spector and the uh, his Scotland Yard friend Flint, uh, they are Ooh. back in book three, which is going to be called Cabaret Macabre. So it's going to be a fun, spooky one, hopefully. It's more of a country Ooh. house mystery. The first two books were set in London um the death and the conjurer was set uh, in a few different locations in london and yeah. uh as as i say the murder wheel is set primarily in this uh in the uh, backstage corridors of the fictional pomegranate theater and then we've, which is um, the name i love all... by the way <laughs> yeah well it's named after the pomegranate theater in chesterfield near where i live so oh, uh, so i uh, so i can't take credit for that one i just like the name <laughs> But, but what's in um, homage too? I think that's yeah, that's a lovely touch. Precisely, precisely, <laughs> yes. But um, 
and there's also of course we've got the ferris wheel so that it, there is a um there is a fairground which has a significant part to play in the murder wheel but cabaret macabre is uh, uh it's it's more of a country house mystery it's set in a more isolated rural setting it's also set in the winter which has a significant part to play in in the way the plot unfolds um and uh it's a, a seemingly haunted house uh, so I've had a, a great fun piling on the atmosphere, piling on the the kind of weirdness, the sort of surreal, eerie ambience. Um, but of course, again, you know that the solution is going to be earthly yep. and rational. But uh, that comes out uh, next August. Ah, oh my goodness, that you fire these out! I'm impressed. I'm like, wow. <laughs> well, you need a holiday. It's you need a break. Yes, I know. Well, it's on to book four now, so that's uh, oh. that's where all my efforts are, are, are going at the moment. Going now, okay. Now, look, I have no idea what to expect for your novel evening because you're obviously <laughs> somebody who has lots of different interests and inspirations. You're obviously very well read. So I think we should just dive in first and foremost to where you're going to take us for your novel evening. Yes, 100%. Yes, well... Uh, I've actually picked a setting from the Spectre books because as I, whenever I'm writing it, it's a place that I wish that I could go to, and it's Spectre's local, which is a uh, which is a pub in Putney called the Black Pig, and um, the more I write about it, the more I think, yes, I would love to go there. <laughs> I would love to sit around that that fireside in those kind of those tall wingback armchairs yeah. and just sort of just sort of bask in the uh, the uh, the kind of the the firelit coziness of it. Um, uh, so that's where we're going. Lovely. Nothing beats a good pub either, and I feel like pubs were <laughs> no. cozier then. Yes, indeed. Well, this is in 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 the books. It's a it's a. a an old school, you know, Elizabethan tavern with the low slung beams and yep. uh, the uh, the the um, all the all the brass and the uh, and the mahogany and the oak yep. and uh, yeah um, and it's it's something that people who've read the books have have told me that they wish that they could go there as well. Uh, We're going to go. Uh, <laughs> this is it exactly and uh yeah so um more and more when i'm writing it i find that i'm throwing in fun little details and i'm thinking yeah this is a this is a perfect place that i would love to go to wonderful top-notch setting okay we're we're gonna <laughs> head there so who's the first person who's going to join us at the black pig well now I i've already talked about harry houdini he seems like right. somebody uh, who would uh, who would have to be there just because I mean no one is going to have stories like he has got you know he's yeah. there's nobody who's uh, had the experience he's had who's who's got the knowledge that he's got so I think he would be a go-to for me oh, I love that idea and I I don't know a great deal about Harry Houdini just the the man you know, I obviously no. know a bit about the legend, but what would it be like to spend time with Harry Houdini, the, the guy? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, I think I would also have to include Agatha Christie. Uh, Very fair. I can just... tell her what Torbay is like now. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure she'd be very intrigued. She always struck me. I've seen footage of her interviews with her and uh, things like that. She's always struck me as a very um, soft-spoken, quiet mm. sort of person in contrast to her massive popular success. Yeah. Um, she's always struck me as being quite a, an introverted individual but at the same time, uh, it's it's those kind of people that always have the best insight and the best, uh, you know, the, the best kind of uh, innate understanding of uh, people. And I think that comes across in her books. Uh, she, she was a um, uh, she had a real knack for uh, getting getting down to the nitty gritty of human psychology yeah. what makes people tick and things like that um not just in terms of characters but in terms of how to 
trick readers, how to lead readers down the garden path. She could do it better than anybody. And uh, I think you have to have a real, uh, a real sense of a real understanding of people and readers to do that. I think she could write something pretty interesting about this as well. I think this might be some inspiration if she's kind of watching us all and considering <laughs> what's happening. I I wonder what she and Houdini would be like together. Well, yes, indeed. Yes. Very. Yes. And absolutely. I think it depends who you're throwing in the mix here as to what's going to happen as the evening progresses. <laughs> yeah. I mean, any dinner party with mystery writers... Uh, I mean, we, we all know how these things pan out. We've all yeah. read these stories, seen these movies. You know that these things don't end well. Mm-mm. Okay, so who are you going to bring in next? Well, I already mentioned John Dixon Carr. He he is my favourite of them all in terms of crime fiction. There's nobody, nobody quite like him uh, when it comes to creating seemingly impossible scenarios he was he was a magician himself an amateur oh, wow. magician uh he was an amateur magician but again it it um it shows in his work he mm. um uh he was he, he worked wonders in his plots i don't know how he did it he is somebody that i uh would rank alongside Agatha Christie as the the very greatest of all the Golden Age mystery writers. He, unlike Agatha Christie, he was a much more boisterous personality. He was very ebullient. He was a big drinker, of course. He was a, um, uh, he was, he was a party animal. Oh, okay. So bringing a different vibe. (laughs) Exactly. A hundred percent. In his younger days, but at the same time, he was incredibly uh, witty and intelligent and uh, so sharp and, and just just brilliant. Somebody I would have loved to have met, I, that I wish I could have met and talked to, you know, in the, in the sort of, in the firelit rooms of the Black Pig. Um, he was an American uh, who came to live in England in the early 30s uh, and he was effectively, he was sort of adopted by the um, detective fiction world here. Wow. In the, uh, 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 he was the first American to be admitted to the uh, detection club, which was sort of, the, which was the, uh, the drinking club for all the big name writers uh, of the day. I love and, that. Um, I love having a drinking well, club. Well, yes, this was it exactly, um, and it was where they would meet and you know talk shop, and they had fun with um, uh, you know sort of archaic rituals and things with uh, with their their pet skull that was their that was their um, uh, uh, their mascot, you know, and all this kind of thing. It was very much a, a this sounds fun. Um, I'm down for taking a pet <laughs> no, skull. Exactly. But... This is exactly what appeals yeah. to me. Um, this it, it, It's always struck me as being, you know, quite a fun, convivial setting. Yeah. And Carr would have been perfect for that. But, of course, as an American, it was... Um, this was very much the kind of literary establishment of the time. So admitting uh, yeah. Carr was quite a coup at the time, you know, uh, yeah. having somebody who was not... Uh, who, who had come from the U.S., um, and and embracing him as as a writer, I think it's a testament to how great he was as a writer. Yeah. Um, but also he was uh, he was a, a superb personality. Okay. So he's gonna. We brought some life and soul into because we've got some maybe quieter figures coming in, maybe a bit more <laughs> enigmatic. So we've got some with a bit of a bit of wit, a bit of personality. So do you have anyone else coming? Uh I, certainly, I um, I think a very underrated uh, golden age detective writer, who is um, somebody who doesn't get talked about enough. She is, uh, I, I would rank her alongside the queens of golden age crime, so Christie Sayers, Marjorie Allingham. Uh, her name is Gladys Mitchell, and she wrote the. Um, uh, the Mrs. Bradley mysteries. She wrote 
um, so many novels. She was writing, the first one came out in 1929 and the last was published in 1982, I believe. Wow. And she was remarkably prolific, remarkably eccentric which I think is something that you need in a in a mm. in a golden age mystery writer. You need that um, that unique eccentricity, uh, yeah. which shows in her writing. She was a one-off. She had a fascination with Freudian psychology and psychoanalysis, okay. which um, which she gave to her detective character, uh, Mrs. Bradley. Okay, um, and she was also she she may or may not have been a practicing white witch, so she was uh, she was enthralled by the world of uh, paganism and uh, magic, folklore, witchcraft, the supernatural. She is she is somebody who could hold her own on these topics. And her, it shows in her novels, as I say, um, mm. she was somebody who she was perhaps not as adept at uh, the plotting, the misdirection, the complexity of the plots. Um, but she uh, she could conjure a perfect scenario and uh, atmosphere. Uh, there are... Um, Several of her books which deal with seemingly supernatural phenomena. But the interesting right. thing is that unlike all the other Golden Age writers, she would not always um, explain it all away. She would sometimes oh, leave okay. you would sometimes leave you with a hint that there that there really has been some kind of otherworldly phenomena that's taken place Ooh. alongside the earthly conspiracies and machinations and murder plots. So, um, I mean, she wrote, uh, she, uh, she, many of her books feature ghosts, uh, vengeful spirits, but then uh, uh, witchcraft, uh, satanic rituals, dark folklore, um, but then she would also have things like the Loch Ness monster pop up in one of her okay. murder mysteries, um, and these are these are just unlike any other gold mage mystery novel. They are that uh, they, they from the outside they appear to be conventional whodunits, but when you dive in, you find that there's a whole a whole know. other world uh, within them. And uh, she Gladys Mitchell, she is somebody that I would love to meet. I think she would be fascinating. You might have some debating going on between Houdini and Mitchell, and <laughs> we might be starting something here Precisely. on believers, not yeah, believers and non-believers. Yes, um, this is yeah, but then that's the fun of it, of course. That's it, that's yeah. what interests me because I mean Houdini and Conan Doyle were uh, ostensibly, you know, they were friends. They had a, a kind of mutual respect, but their philosophies were so different. Yeah. Healthy, healthy um, debate, I think, is the <laughs> is the key. Precisely, yes. Okay, so is that is that it for your group who are coming? Do you have anybody else? To I, I think, to be honest, I, I I could I could quite easily reel off more names of people that I would love to have met and sat with and talked to, but I think for one evening, that's more than enough. Yeah, and is there anybody that you wouldn't want to show up at the Black Pig? Well. Uh, I mean, not, uh, it's a tough I one. Mean, I, <laughs> it is a tough one. Uh, I mean, there are so, there are, there are heaps and heaps of people, obviously from, uh, uh, you know, from people whose names and faces pop up on the news who just mm -hmm. make my skin crawl, who I would not want to be in a room with, but, um, thinking about the world of, of mystery fiction, and stage magic and mm -hmm. all that that uh, that kind of thing. Uh, it, it was really, it, it's really about the 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 kind of boisterous personalities uh, which right. appeal to me. Uh, I mean, I, I mentioned Agatha Christie as being someone who was 
uh, who, who struck me as being an introverted figure, but who at the same time had that uh, that great insight. And I think she yeah. would she would be a great person to have an in-depth conversation with. Definitely. But I suppose the, the ones that wouldn't appeal to me would be, um, well, Anthony Barclay, he was a golden age mystery writer who was, a, um, I would say, a complex figure. He his books are very interesting and very good, um, mm-hmm. by and large. But he <laughs> was uh, he was he was somebody you would not want to find yourself in a in a trapped in a room with because he he was um, he he always comes across in the uh, the biographical things that I've read and the articles that I've read written by him as someone who was very arrogant, very opinionated, somebody who, if he was, if he was on form, could be very charming and entertaining, yep. but at the same time could be very difficult and very, uh, very challenging. So okay. I, would, I would rule him out, but not because I don't like his work. His books are great. That's very fair. Maybe he's just not the right fit for this evening. <laughs> precisely, precisely. Yeah. Now that I, I love the fact that this is very much a testament to your love for the golden age of mysteries and magic in the local pub of one of your characters, I think <laughs> is beautiful. And before I let you go, Tom, my last question for you is if you're reading anything at the moment. Yes, I well, I, I, I'm actually I'm between books, but I just finished uh, The House of Four by Barbara Nadell. Ooh. Now, uh, Barbara Nadell is a fantastic, very prolific author who has a long-running series set in Turkey, featuring um, featuring a uh, um, a sort of world-weary, chain-smoking Turkish detective called Ikmen, <laughs> and he is a fantastic character. They have, um, I understand they have been adapted for TV, though they have not yet aired. But um, the books are just my sort of thing. Uh, And I think, if anything, the series gets better as it progresses. The book is called uh, The House of Four that I've been reading. So it's quite a a late one, uh, quite a a comparatively recent one. Barbara Nadell is lovely. I uh, I met her in the summer, and uh, yes, had uh, was very starstruck uh, and chatting about Ikmen and all things Turkish. But um, the the books, like the best golden age mysteries, they offer perfect plots. The atmosphere and the the feeling of Turkey, which can only come from from Barbara's knowledge of the country and yep. her, her, the, the long time that she spent there but um also there's a sense of mysticism and the uh, uh the the kind of um uh the, the various ghosts and superstitions of the city as well which uh, which inform the stories and uh i think that's what sets barbara nadell's books apart from mm. other uh, similar books that are set in the great cities of the world you know I think she has got this knack for atmosphere that 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 goes right the way back to the great gothic fiction um, as well as being a great plotter and uh, a very entertaining readable writer so I would definitely recommend the Ikmen series by Barbara Nadell um, yeah you've sold me say, that's been written down yes <laughs> no, no she's terrific um uh, but yeah, the House of Four—that's what I've read. But like I say, I'm I'm currently between books. I, I finished that one. So I Hello. Hello, there we go. Sorry, we had a little moment there. You disappeared. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Yes. Uh, so where was I? I'll just. You were between uh, books. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I, uh, I, ha- the House of Four. That's what I have just finished reading. But as I say, I am 
currently between books and I'm uh, on the hunt for my next read. Okay. Do you know, do you have a rough idea what you might go for? Well, I'm thinking of diving into another Paul Doherty. Paul Doherty is a brilliant writer of uh, historical murder mysteries. Okay. Um, I'm a particular fan of his series featuring the medieval monk uh, brother Athelstan. So uh, these are, many of them are locked room mysteries. They're set during the reign of hmm. uh, Richard II. Um, and uh, just so vivid and meticulously researched. I'm not a big fan of historical fiction, generally speaking, mm -hmm. uh, fiction set in, you know, the ancient past. But Paul Doherty does it as, as uh, you know, he, he's he's the best in the business as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, um, and a, a terrific mystery plotter as well. I think that's such a clever twist, having like a luxury mystery, but like medieval. Definitely, definitely. I've never heard um, of anything like that. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he wasn't the first to do it. There were others that had done it. Um, I suppose in terms of historical murder mystery, Agatha Christie was one of the first because her novel Death Comes as the End was uh, set in ancient Egypt. So oh, that was really? Yeah, so that was um, uh, certainly uh, an important early influential historical mystery novel. But Paul Doherty's, his first was called The Nightingale Gallery. And that was in the late 80s, I believe. But he's now written over 100 books in various wow. different series. He's incredibly prolific, but also very imaginative. And uh, he's got that in common with all my favourites, Christie, um, yeah. Carr, and and the rest. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm just... Uh, settling on my my next Paul Doherty amazing well look Tom this has been such a pleasure thank you so so much and I wish you all the best of luck with the murder wheel I think it's going to do absolutely fantastically and thank you so much for joining me my pleasure Danny thank you so much for having me Thank you for listening to this episode of A Novel Evening. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. Please remember to go over and rate, subscribe and review wherever you listen to your podcasts and check us out on Instagram at A Novel Evening Podcast and over on TikTok under the same name and we'll see you next week. Bye bye.